Good morning. You know, I was really hoping that this morning would be the day that we could all get back together. Wouldn't that have been great? Then on Easter Sunday, we could all come back together and celebrate being back together. I know uh, this is a time when many of our folks would have worn their best Easter suits and dresses and Easter ties or whatever it may be. This is also a time where we'd have an Easter egg hunt after services. And, you know, I know that this is a time where we long to be together just as we have every week that we have been able, unable to be together. But we're hoping and we're praying that soon this pandemic will be over and that we will be able to come back together. But it is a great thing that we can still worship online and we thank you for tuning in this morning. You know, we're going to talk about the resurrection. What a novel idea, right? To talk about the resurrection on uh, a day that is celebrated by our world as Easter Sunday. And we're excited to talk about the resurrection because it is paramount to our faith. It means everything to us as Christians, not just one day a year, but every single day. There was a gentleman who had a friend that was opening a business and he wanted to give his friend a gift. And so he called up the florist and he said, uh, yeah, can you give me some flowers, maybe a bouquet that I can send to my friend who's opening a business and, and just put a note of encouragement along with it. And the florist said, sure, we'll take care of it. And so the day of the grand opening comes and the man goes to visit his friend at his new business. And he looks and there's all sorts of flowers all over the place, but he, he couldn't find any that had his name on them. He looked and looked and finally he found a wreath that was odd, and attached to the wreath was a ribbon that said, rest in peace. And he thought that was interesting, and also he was a little bit irritated. And so when he left the, the, his friend's business and grand opening, he got on the phone, he called the florist, and he said, hey, what's the deal? I mean, you don't send a wreath that says rest in peace to a guy that's opening a new business. And the florist says, well, you think you've got problems? Think about my predicament. Somewhere, there's a funeral that has a bouquet of flowers that says, good luck in your new location. You know, thankfully, the Bible has a lot to say about death, and it has more to say than just good luck at your new location. In fact, the Bible has much to say about death and the defeat of death. Thankfully, the resurrection is at the heart of the Christian message. It's at the heart of the gospel. And it's at the heart of our faith as well. Resurrection is the hook upon which everything hangs. It is the hinge upon which everything that applies to our faith swings. You think about the gospel. You think about the assurance that comes through the fact that death will not win. Our biggest problem as human beings is death. We talked about this a few weeks ago, and we talked about, you know, in Ephesians, Paul talks about how you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and we talked about how dead there doesn't mean what we commonly think it means. We often draw a dichotomy, and we tend to say that, you know, death here means that you're separated from God because of your sins, but Paul, Paul doesn't make that distinction. Now, Paul, when he talks about you were dead in your sins and trespasses, he means dead as in you're dead, no heartbeat, you're medically dead right? The problem that all human beings have is that we're all going to die. And it's been a problem since the foundation of the world. It's been a problem ever since Adam and Eve ate from the wrong menu. Ever since that fateful day in the Garden of Eden, humanity has suffered from a lack of access to the tree of life. Now, sin is the root cause of this problem, and death is the consequence. In other words, everyone is going to die. Then what? 
Of course, if you're lost in sin, the outcome's not going to be good. But if death is something that we all have to face, but we face it in Christ, well, then we have a glorious future awaiting us. Notice what's written in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul talked about resurrection a lot, and I mean a lot. It was a major theme in his writings, which only makes sense when you consider how paramount the resurrection is to our faith and who we are as Christians. Over and over again in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes mention of how the gospel story is in accordance with the scriptures. And the question becomes, what scriptures? Well, the Old Testament scriptures, right? It wasn't like Paul was toting around a King James version of the Bible. He was talking about the Hebrew scriptures, and Paul says that the Hebrew scriptures point to a once and for all atoning sacrifice that comes through the Messiah, the anointed one, which is Jesus Christ. Now, Paul isn't referring to some random scriptures that predict that the Messiah is going to come into the world. Paul is saying that the story of scripture The whole story of Scripture paints a picture and it points in the direction of God providing a sacrificial lamb. And it's interesting that when Paul talks about death and the death of Jesus, he doesn't say that Jesus died for our sins. He doesn't say that that Jesus died on a cross. No, he says Christ died for our sins. You do know that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Christ literally means anointed one. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, that that priests and kings were anointed with oil to show that they were chosen by God. And a king was chosen to reign and to bless. The exiled will no longer be outcast. The anointed one was coming to be both priest and king. And he will rule over the people while purifying them from their sin. This is the climax to Israel's story. The anointed priestly king is precisely what God's people needed. And it wasn't just God's people in the Old Testament that needed this Messiah, this anointed one. It wasn't just Israel. Israel's story is our story. We, of all people, need the anointed one as well. Notice Revelation 5, 9 and 10. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We are the ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and nation, that includes you and me, Israel's story is our story. In fact, it's now a kingdom story where all the world has been invited to enter in. But here's the deal. In order for Jesus to be our anointed priest and king, he couldn't just be God. He had to be human as well. And as you know, mortality is a part of humanity's makeup. We are all born with an expiration date. We are all terminal. No one is getting out of here alive. The hardest part of life is death. So if God is going to take on flesh and blood, then mortality has to be a part of that existence. The fact that Jesus died and was buried emphasizes the fact that he shares in our mortality. The people of Israel referred to the burial of one of their own as being gathered to their people. Or more specifically, they would say being gathered to their fathers. So for Israel, it was necessary for the Messiah to be gathered to his people in every way because the Messiah came to save the living, but also the dead. So... 
The burial of Jesus was a way for him to identify with us. But there's a way that we identify with him as well, right? And what is that called? Well, that is baptism. That is where we identify with the burial of Jesus as well as the resurrection. Through baptism, we identify with Jesus. We also identify with Israel because we too are delivered from bondage. We are delivered from slavery. And being buried with Jesus in baptism means that the dirt, the grave, the tomb no longer has any power over us. It's not our permanent destination. Death no longer has any claim over us. We've already been buried. That took place when we were buried with Jesus. But as awesome as all this is, this can't be the end of the story, right? I mean, burial can't be the end. If all we do is identify with Jesus in his burial, well, then we have an incomplete story and we are still lost in our sins. There has to be a next step. And through the prophets, God promised that he would raise Israel from the dead. Of course, there seems to be a bit of metaphor and, and symbolism in these promises, but I don't believe that there's any doubt that men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob believed in a bodily resurrection. Many first century Jews believed that on the last day, God would raise his people Israel from the dead. And so Jesus claimed to be the embodiment of Israel. He lived his life as a faithful Israelite and as a representative of Israel. He lived his whole life for his whole people. And he died on behalf of his whole people. So when God raised Jesus from the dead, God was keeping his promise to Israel. He was raising the faithful from the dead, and he starts with the most faithful, the one who offered himself as the atoning sacrifice. As I mentioned a moment ago, Paul pointed to the story of the Messiah and stated that it was in accordance with the Scriptures. Again, Paul wasn't talking about a bunch of proof texts. He wasn't talking about turning to your concordance and just finding, you know, all the uh, mentions of the Messiah or resurrection. He means that the Messiah being raised from the dead is in line with what we see from the Hebrew Scriptures. There is a picture being painted here. There is an overarching theme that we see throughout the Bible, especially from the Old Testament. We see that Jeremiah was raised up out of the cistern. We see that Daniel was raised up out of the lion's den. We see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were raised up out of the fiery furnace. Joseph was raised up out of the pit. These stories fit a theme and structure that Paul is pointing to. And it's a theme and structure that illustrates the character of God. God delivers his people. God rescues his people. He keeps his promises. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will not leave those who are faithful to him in the tomb. He will rescue people who put their faith in him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that God will do what he says. And by raising up the Messiah, the anointed one, God has done exactly what he promised to do from the very beginning. A few years ago, I, I lost my voice. No big deal though, right? I mean, Everybody at one time or another has probably faced laryngitis, but not me. I'd never lost my voice. I'd never dealt with laryngitis in my life. I could not talk at all. And I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but it was one of those things where after a couple of days, you start to think, well, what if I don't get my voice back? You know how important my voice is? It only means everything. Other than that, it's, it's not much. I mean, doing a podcast every week, doing a television program, preaching three times on Sunday, I use my voice a lot. And so... The thought entered my mind after a couple of days, well, what if? What if my voice doesn't return? My voice is my livelihood. It means everything. Other than that, it doesn't mean much. 
How much does the resurrection mean to us? How much did the resurrection mean to Paul? Well, it only meant everything. Other than that, it wasn't very important. But notice 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 13. Paul writes, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he, was ra- that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It only means everything, folks. If Jesus is still in the tomb, then your prayers are not getting past the ceiling tiles. If Jesus was not raised on the third day, then your Bible is worth nothing more than really a paperweight. If Jesus is still in the tomb, then you might as well worship the Easter bunny. If the resurrection never occurred, then heaven is just a pipe dream and hell is the only future you have to look forward to. Because like Paul stated, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So forget about hope. It doesn't exist. If Jesus didn't come out of the tomb three days later, then you and I have staked our spiritual livelihood on a myth and we might as well worship a unicorn or Bigfoot. But the resurrection did happen. The tomb is empty. It is a historical event of epic proportions. And how do I know this? Well, for starters, even the chief priest and Jewish leaders did not deny it. You ever notice that when you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' death? They didn't even deny it. The people in charge didn't even deny it. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 11 and following. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. You know, it's not hard to prove that someone is still in the grave. That's not difficult. The Jewish authorities had used treachery to lay hold of Jesus. They used illegality to try him. They used slander to charge him. And they used bribery to silence the truth about him. Secondly, Who moved the stone? I mean, the stone that sealed the entrance to Jesus' tomb was massive. Archaeologists describe it as like the tomb being like a cave and there being a, a, a small hillside with a groove in the ground. And they would take this massive stone, usually weighing two tons or more, and they would roll it down into that groove in front of the entrance to the cave. And then they would set a smaller stone in front of it to seal it shut. In Matthew 27, 65, Pilate tells the guards to go and make the tomb as secure as they can. In verse 66, it says that they sealed the stone and put a guard in place to watch over it. Mark's account tells us that Mary Magdalene, Mary, and Salome were on their way to the tomb, spices in hand, when the thought occurred to them, well, who's going to move the stone? How are we going to get it out of the way so that we can prepare Jesus' body? The point is, the stone sealing the tomb assured that no one was getting out and no one was getting in. Also consider that Paul says there were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord. He says that Jesus appeared to Cephas, to the 12, and then to some 500, and even to Paul. Were all of these 500 plus people hallucinating? Were they all just seeing things? 
Then consider that, that no sane individual would die for a lie, would they? And yet, the apostles put their lives on the line after the resurrected Jesus. Now, they were pretty cowardly before Jesus' death, but afterwards they were bold and they were courageous and they faced persecution, even death, for preaching and proclaiming the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No one would do that if they didn't believe wholeheartedly. Now, you may be saying, well, there's a lot of people who've believed a lot of strange things through the years. You may recognize this gentleman. This is Marshall Applewhite. He was the leader of a cult known as Heaven's Gate, you might remember that he convinced 39 adherents to drink some sort of strange concoction, and uh, they committed suicide by all drinking it at the same time. They believed that their bodies would be whisked up into a spaceship that was following the Hale-Bopp comet. Yeah, people have died for some pretty strange things. However, the difference between, say, Marshall Applewhite and Jesus is resurrection. Many people may have believed in some strange things, but those who died for Jesus had the body of evidence to prove that they were not dying in vain. So let's go to John's words in John chapter 11 of his gospel, starting in verse 17. Here's what we read. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You know, my mother had a computer that uh, had to be one of the very first computers that ever came out. I don't know if it was a Texas Instruments or a Commodore 64, but it was one of those really old computers that she refused to get rid of. You might as well press the start button on this thing and then go run your errands, go get groceries or whatever, be gone for an hour because by the time you came back, maybe it would be booted up. This thing took forever to turn on. The power would be on, but it took forever to boot up. And such is the case with the resurrection of Jesus. The power came on, the switch had been flipped, the button had been pressed, paradise was in startup mode, but the full display was yet to be seen. Even now, we wait, we, we know that the resurrection changes everything, and we know that God is in control, and we know that there is hope on the horizon. As New Testament Christians, we live a resurrected life, but the full power of it is still to come. The day when the mortal will put on immortality, when the fleshly will give way to the spiritual, we're in startup startup mode and we're waiting for the full realization of the resurrection and while we wait God gives us snapshots he gives us little pictures and little glimpses of what is to come and that is exactly what this is John chapter 11 is a snapshot it is a glimpse of what is to come the death and resurrection of Lazarus is a short synopsis of the bigger story Jesus is using the resurrection of Lazarus as foreshadowing to what will take place three days after he is laid in the tomb. 
I mean, after all, if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus, there would be no other resurrection. I know that sounds painfully obvious, but all resurrection is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. Remember Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We'll talk about this more in a later lesson, but first fruits here doesn't just mean best. It means the first with more to come. Jesus is the very first in the resurrection harvest. There's more to come. Paul tells us, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So even though, even though we wait for Jesus to come again, and although we wait for the day when all things will be made new, the switch has been flipped, the power is on, the most important resurrection has already occurred, and it has set the tone for all the others. But right here, Right here in John chapter 11, Jesus sets the tone for what is to come. Why did he raise Lazarus? Well, I think the obvious reason is to show that he could. I mean, it's one thing to say, I am the resurrection and the life. It's something totally different to actually stoop down and look in a tomb and tell a man who's been dead for four days to get up and walk out and he actually does it. That would put a dent in the doubters, wouldn't it? But also, Jesus uses this episode as a means to connect action to his teaching. Before going to Bethany, Thomas says, Let us also go, that we may die with him. And I believe that Thomas meant every word of that. Death was a very real possibility. Bethany was only two miles from Jerusalem, so really in the enemy's backyard. And yet Jesus, who already had some close calls, goes to Bethany, even though it was not in his best interest, but it was a great opportunity to put some meat on the bone, so to speak, to put some teeth to his teaching. Notice what he says in verses 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But we can't afford to pass over what this meant for Mary and Martha as well. The Jews believed that the soul sort of hung around the body for three days after death. This was their belief. And so, for three days after death, there was this hope that maybe spirit and body would be united again. But waiting four days means all hope was gone. And that's why Jesus waited, I believe. At least one of the reasons why he tarried and why he didn't rush to their side immediately is because he wanted to show the power of the miracle being made even greater by the fact that Lazarus was deader than a doornail, being in the tomb for four days. But I believe that another reason why Jesus stayed longer was because of what is written in verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And you think, well, duh. I mean, so if he loved them, then why didn't he rush to their side immediately? It should be the other way around, right? If you love someone, you don't wait four days. You immediately go to them. But we have to understand that Jesus is giving Mary Martha and his disciples and us a glimpse of what it lies ahead. No suffering is wasted in the kingdom of God. No pain is empty or her hopeless. In the moment of Martha's misery, Jesus' response is, I am the resurrection and the life. And through this statement, Jesus is reminding Martha that her hope is not in some specific event or circumstances. Her hope was not in a pain-free existence. Jesus' goal was not to shield Martha from grief. It was to teach her something through the pain. Jesus wanted Mary and Martha to shift their focus. Focus away from the earthly circumstances to the hope of something greater. 
Martha's eyes were focused on the tomb of her brother. Jesus wanted her eyes to be focused on the tomb that he would be laid in and that he would walk out of three days later. Look, death is a certainty. I mean, there's no getting around it. I checked the the mortality rates for Taylor County, and they're 100%. And they would be for any county you live in. We're not getting out of here alive. We're all born with an expiration date. Death is an enemy that leaves destruction in its wake. And as long as we are forced to deal with death, we're going to weep like Jesus did. But in the midst of something so dark and so heart-wrenching, Jesus comes with an offer of true life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't bring these things. He doesn't do these things. He is these things. He is the embodiment of the undoing of the curse of sin. He is the resurrection of a dying creation. He is the hope of a dying world. Suffering and dying do not have the last word. The last enemy has been defeated. Jesus is the answer to our greatest problem. Suffering and death are not the end of the story because it was not the end of Christ's story. You know, there are a lot of important life questions out there. What am I here for? You know, what must I do to be saved? What's my purpose? I mean, these are, these are very important questions, life questions that we ask, but without a doubt, The supreme question of life is the question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that though you die, you will live? 